couple episodes ago, I put out the episode, We Got 200 Mil. And in my speech, I challenged Harvard, and it's brand new, $200 million Institute on Climate and Sustainability to get meaningfully active on what we call the front lines of climate change. I really appreciate the convos I've been having with a lot of people about this because on the front lines of climate change, I think one thing is we really see how the climate affects our health. But even more importantly, the other thing is we see how much power we have to do something about it. So how should Harvard and how should we get busy on the front lines? To answer that, we got to hit up someone who knows what is really happening on the front lines. We got to get the word on the street. Hey, this is Osa Senegal and this is The Climate Doctor, you know I'm deep. I'm here with Denise Jilson, um, Executive Director of the Harvard Square Business Association, um, of which the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter is a member. Uh, she's been engaging with the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter through her board position, of course, working um, on the business association for over 30 years now. And um, I'm really honored to have this opportunity to, to interview Denise, honestly. Um, so Denise, how are you feeling? And please tell us about yourself. Good morning. So doing well, thank you. And I'm, and it's also an honor for me to be here um, talking to you this morning about um, on this program. Well, thank you so much. I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you're busy um, doing the good work that you do managing. And I guess I just want to get to look, get to know you better. I know our viewers would too. Um, like where, where are you from? So born in Somerville, and grew up here in Cambridge and Somerville. My mother was born in Somerville. I mean, excuse me, in Cambridge. My grandmother was born in Cambridge. So I'm very local. Okay. And so I know that's kind of a loaded question. When a lot of people can take it in different ways when we ask them, where are you from? Some people talk about, you know, their parents' history. I know you just did in Somerville. Um, some people talk about their ethnic, cultural identities. Like, how do these identities influence where you are today? Like, how, what made you want to come to the Harvard Business Association? So um, that's a good question. And, you know, I feel really very blessed to be here um, leading the charge in Harvard Square, going on 17 years um, in April as the executive director. And I'm as excited today as I was on the first day. And that's because I feel like I have the best job in the world. <laughs> um, you know, Harvard Square is such an exciting place and such an historical place. And I think with the university, um, campus right here in, you know, the front yard of the square is, um, it, it's what makes it very special. But it's not just the university, it, it's also the history. So when you think about the American Revolution and, you know, George Washington being here and living for a little bit on Brattle Street mm. and um, all of, you know, the activities around the, the American Revolution, there's just such a rich history that um and that's authentic it's genuine and it's not going away so people will always be interested in coming here and you know my job as the executive director is to welcome people from every corner of the globe harvard square is a brand name even though we mm -hmm. don't like to think of it as a brand but the truth is that it's a brand name if you say harvard square anywhere in the world people can relate and you know for um us to be in the position of making sure that the square so caring for the square 
since 1910 mm. is the people in it yeah. is, a, is a task that, you know, really speaks to the heart of the kinds of things that you and I will be talking about because everybody's welcomed here from mm. global leaders to the unhoused and everybody in between. We need to make sure that the square is clean, safe, welcoming, fun, and more importantly, um, to really, you know, for us to take care of the public space. So that means the tables, the chairs, the umbrellas, the banners, the holiday decorations, the sidewalk patios, you know, A-frame signs that, you know, protrude sometimes into the public space. It can be a tripping hazard for people, mm. all of that. But then the unhoused and making sure that the resources like the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter, like y to y um, are available, and you know we work very closely with our faith leaders here in the square, mm. the folks from First Parish, from Christ Church, from you know First Church, from the University Lutheran Church, St. Mm. Paul's, all of these churches, Harvard Epworth, all of them are members of the association, and each one of them provides something for the unhoused in the mm. community, whether it's the Friday Cafe at First Church or the Tuesday meal program at First Parish or the, you know, the suppers at Christ Church. They're, 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 we, we really work very hard to make sure that our unhoused um, are, are getting the services that they need. And that, you know, also requires us to work closely with the city of Cambridge and with the Cambridge Police Department to make sure that, um, you know, things are, um, that things are taken care of. So that was a loaded question and a long answer. No, and I appreciate it because I didn't know so much about the extensive history and the ongoing work that you're doing right now to, you know, like you said, accommodate all types of people coming in, whether from tourists or, like you said, leaders of the world and to the unhoused. Um, and of course, you know, I want to ask more about how you are able to cater to the unhoused populations, because you said that they're a part of uh, the Harvard Square uh, Business Association, like member groups. And that's that's really interesting to me. Like, how does that work where an unhoused population has standing in some of like in, in Harvard, you know, a, a university associated with prestige and, you know, uh, credits? You have to have some type of reasoning for someone to have a voice at any table in Harvard, Harvard Square, like with this history. Um, so how do you work around those power dynamics um, in, in, in your work? So I think it's really working from the street level up rather than, you know, trying to get it from the top down. Mm. So, you know, um, the university, to its credit, has always been a member of the association. And um, there's a representative from Harvard on our board at this very moment. And it's not just, you know, um, a mid-level person. I mean, it's a person that is very close to, you know, that answers directly to the president. And we're honored and privileged to have a person of such prestige um, part of our board. And, you know, um, there's always a, you know, attendance from the director of um, government and community affairs who sits um, with us in our board meeting meetings and, you know, participates. But it's interesting, Harvard never wants to be seen as driving the bus and we mm. appreciate that, but they always want to be on the bus. And an important, um, that's an important analogy, right? Um, they they want to be a team player, and they are. And we respect that. And, and again, we feel um, very privileged to have them as part of it. 
And I think they see it as not only um, a duty, but an obligation, right? That, that, that they um, are, are at the table, that they know what we're doing. And to some extent, we understand what Harvard is trying to do. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, Harvard has a lot of goals, but I think, and I can't speak for them, but one of the goals, of course, is to keep the student population safe. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important when you have a community where, you know, there's only 120,000 people here in Cambridge that are, you know, that are registered, you know, Cambridge citizens. But then when you think about how many people come in from across the globe, you know, visitors, we, we get anywhere between six and eight million visitors a year mm-hmm. and how those visitors interact with the students and making sure that, you know, campus is always safe. I mean, safety is a priority for everybody. Um, in in this day and age, it's you know it, it's becoming even more um, more of an issue, I think. So so Harvard works hard on that, and um, again, we're we're pleased to have them as part of our group. And you know, the city of Cambridge also. So Cambridge Police Department, um, you know, we work very closely with various um, various people at the um, at the city level, whether it's traffic, parking, and transportation whether it's, you know, at the multi-service center. And there are so many ways, the department, the DPW, the Department of Public Works, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways that we interact with the city to keep the, the square safe and clean and welcoming. So we always sort of go back to that. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we, it needs to be relevant. So it needs to be relevant, particularly to our student population. So when people talk about, you know, the kinds of stores that are here in Harvard Square and the kinds of restaurants, we always tell them, you know, really, consumer is consumers came and, you know, consumers really make the determination. So when there's a particular store that goes out or a particular restaurant, people are lamenting, why do they leave? You know, well, mm-hmm. people are going there. I mean, what can I tell you? You know, the students have a particular place that they want to be. And if you think about, you know, the pandemic and the kind of stores and restaurants that really survived and actually thrived during the pandemic and the quarantine Places like El Jefe's and, and you know, Felipe's and Grendel's Den, who remained open and they were, you know, Black Sheep Bagel. I mean, these are places that people wanted to um, buy food from and the pandemic didn't stop them from doing that. So those businesses were, you know, they're driven, they're, their success is driven in so many ways by the student population. So this, you know, this relationship is so important. And I appreciate you talking about, again, like how you're working with Cambridge at large, working with Harvard University to protect uh, not only people in the area, but specifically students, as well as the unhoused populations. And that's what it requires to do the good work you're doing. Um, I'm going to we're going to get into more about Harvard just in a bit. But I kind of want to for a second talk about um, your work with Cambridge at large and how that works with both uh, to, you know, for the safety of the students, as well as to you know, cater to the unhoused populations, which, you know, represent what we call environmental justice populations. Um, These populations stand to suffer uh, the most from the consequences of climate change while, you know, they contributing the least. Um, So I think where what do you see as the the major things that we are are missing or like where there's areas for improvement when it's when it comes to you know, maybe it's at a policy level, a healthcare level. How do we deal with the unhoused population based off of your experience? Yeah. So, you know, this, that's a great question. Um, and I'd like to share with you a couple of stories that happened recently. And one of them involved um, a, a Harvard student who was 
volunteering at the Harvard Square homeless shelter. Hmm. And it was in November of um, 2021. And there was a guest at the Harvard Square homeless shelter um, who went in and, and um, you know, got a meal. I think he got a blanket and he spoke with one of the um, student volunteers that night, a person by the name of Cody Christensen. Hmm. And um, Cody, you know, talked with this person whose name, whose, whose name was Michael. And the following morning, Michael was found dead in front of 1414 Mass Ave, which is the um, Bank of America building. Hmm. And um, the security guard at the Bank of America noticed that um, Michael wasn't moving and um, some people gathered around and Cody happened upon that scene. Mm -hmm. And Cody was the last person to talk to Michael. And it's clear that, um, you know, he had had sort of a massive stroke Mm -hmm. probably sometime that morning, you know, six in the morning or something like that. And um, they tried really hard to revive him and um, they weren't able to. In the meantime, they called 911 the ambulance came. They brought Michael to the Mount Auburn Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. So, you know, Cody was really shaken by that. And he reached out to me and said, you know, we, we need to do something to honor this gentleman's life. Now, I knew Michael sort of because we have the fridge in the square. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the refrigerator in the pantry that's in front of first first um, parish at the corner of Church Street and Mass Avenue. No, I was not aware. I did not know. Yeah, so there's a community fridge that all of your listeners need to know about. And, um, you know, we welcome some help, and you and I can talk about that offline. But, yeah. um, but you know, um, it's it, it's been out there for um, since, you know, 2020. So, Michael, when I would, would bring food to the pantry there, um, or the refrigerator, Michael would frequently try to help me take, you know, groceries from my car and, and bring them to the fridge. And, and, um, so I got to know him a little bit. He liked peanut butter and he liked cheddar cheese for sure. And Michael was known for a few months. He had, you know, that summer he, he was here, he was frequently barefoot. People, you know, gave Michael shoes and sneakers and he would always lose them. And I, I, I think one of these days, you know, there's some corner of Harvard Square where there are probably 70 pair of shoes and sneakers that Michael just, you know, had. Um, so anyway, Cody was really shaken by it. So we put a, a little memorial in front of the um, Bank of America on the tree. We put a wreath. It was getting to be close to the holiday season. Put a small table with candle. Um, the mobile ministry, the Capuchin mobile ministry that also serviced Michael, that they were in front of the, um, they would frequently come in front of the kiosk in Harvard Square and Michael would go to the mobile ministry and get a cup of coffee or a sandwich or whatever. So they came and they did a little, a little service in front of the memorial. It turns out that Michael was not identified. He has still not been identified. Um, The only name that we knew him as is Michael. They, the city of Cambridge, checked all the shelters. They knew of him. They did not know his last name. We knew nothing about him. I worked very closely with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts um, with the office for um, the chief medical examiner's office to try to get them to release Michael to us. 
um, because he was languishing on some, you know, slab in some building, frozen and never laid to rest. So it took about six months, but we were able to get the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to release Michael's body to the business association. Now, two of our members um, in particular, Keith Funeral Home, which is in North Cambridge, is a member of the association. We reached out to Keith and said, would you would you prepare the body? Mm-hmm. And um, he agreed to do that gratis. He provided a casket. Payne Senior Services, that's also located at First Parish right here in Harvard Square, a member of the association, and they deal with elderly seniors and trying to help them with whatever their needs are. They made a donation of a burial plot. Mm. And Cody wrote a beautiful poem. And in June of this of 2022, we held a memorial service for Michael in front of the church. The reverend of the church came out and did the, um, you know, presided over the service. The police commissioner, Cambridge Police Commissioner Christine Elo, spoke at that service. Former city mayor and current city councilor Mark McGovern spoke at that service. Hmm. Cody read his poem at that service. And we had um, another interesting group who is um, called the um, Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society Brass Band, which is a New Orleans-style second-line brass band. who are local here to Cambridge, and they pres- they they're they're the people who um, founded Honk. If you're familiar with, the oh Honk yeah, Festival. yeah, yeah, Honk Fest. Yeah, so they came and they played music, appropriate, you know, New Orleans-style funeral music, and um, the city of Cambridge provided. After the service, police escort from the church to the cemetery to bury this gentleman. Today, he is still not identified. But because of this community, this wonderful community that we have, including a student from Harvard, Payne Senior Services, First Parish Church, the Honkers, and Key Funeral Home, all coming together to bury an unhoused gentleman. That's what we do, and that's how it works. But it works from the street up. We didn't ask anybody for permission. We just did what needs to be done. And I think that goes back to you know the um, mission of the, of the association and the leadership here at the association, who for years has always told the executive directors, just do the right thing. So our mission is to promote commerce in Harvard Square while being good stewards of the public space. And our tagline is caring for the square since 1910. And that means, of course, caring for the people in the square, too. Can I just say that's a really moving story like that? That's powerful right there. I think stories are some things that we often overlook when we get into these works, you know, we we always think about like the facts and you know we want like the nice cold truth whatever that means in terms of tell me this this is how we solve the problem but stories are so powerful and i want to thank you for sharing um like that was heavy <laughs> um I was, I was i just like i really appreciate that because there's a lot of things there to unpack um i think 
one thing that I immediately noticed was, again, that student um, who you said was the first to identify that something's wrong with Mike, Michael as he was laying on the ground. Um, I, I think and that that paint that story paints such a beautiful picture of like the relationship between the student volunteers at Harvard with the unhoused population in the Harvard Square. And and I, I want to hear more about like just how you think Harvard like, should Harvard be relying so much on student volunteers to address, you know, the unhoused population um, and their and their concerns in the Harvard Square? And like, is is that is that something that we should be supporting? Well, of course. And I, I think that, you know, as much as um, Harvard will give you the best education in the world, um, these kinds of experiences will leave an indelible impression on the lives of students the rest of their life, and it will inform them as they move forward in, in the decisions that they make, right? So when you think about, um, you know, two students several years ago, Harvard students, um, the names are Sarah Rosencrantz and Sam Greenberg. And I don't know if you know them because they're now a little bit older than you, but about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, they came to the Business Association and said, we would like, we are, we are volunteers at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. And we realize that there's a certain segment of the population who is not being serviced or they are being, we're not meeting their needs. And that is young people between the ages of 18 and 25 and people who identify as LBGTQ plus. So we want to found a shelter that will dedicate, the mission will, will be dedicated to serving that population mm. and we need to raise the money. So they were looking at raising about $800,000 and we quick, quickly realized that that was not going to be enough, that they really needed to raise about 1.2 million. Mm. So we worked with them, the business association. I sat on the advisory board. We helped them raise money here in the square and elsewhere. We wrote letters on their behalf to various granting agencies, and we worked closely with them to help find space here in the square where they could put the shelter. As it turns out, we keep going back to First Parish because First Parish is, you know, just the cornerstone of Harvard Square when you think about it. The university and First Parish came in the same year, 1636. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, and, um, you know, they have been... They house pain senior services. They house the, the Tuesday meal program. They host the refrigerator. They house the Cambridge Forum. Um, and, and they house the Y2Y shelter. Mm. And the, the shelter shares space. Um, as you know, the shelter is in the evening from like 7 o'clock in the evening until, you know, 8 o'clock the next morning. And then during the day, that space is used by Youth on Fire, which is another agency that provides um, sort of day, it's not really a day shelter, but a day program for the, for the unhoused. So, you know, we, we helped Sam and Sarah, these two students do this. And, you know, it was interesting because I received a call from a reporter one time and they said, you know, this is quite remarkable. We have covered, you know, shelters from one end of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to the other. And we've never encountered a situation where the business community mm. so thoroughly embraced the idea of putting a shelter in the heart of a business district. Mm. You know, what's up with that? 
who basically said, look, you know, this is an authentic place. We walk by the unhoused population every single day. We know them. We know them. Mm. And I don't want to name names, but I could name names. And we want to make sure that they're getting the services that they need in the hope that, you know, they can move on in their lives and become, you know, productive members of society. So, yeah, we're going to help. And we did. And the shelter, I think, recently celebrated its 10th anniversary. And I remember talking to Sam and Sarah and saying, you know, this is such a great model because the students are the ones that are helping, but they're also benefiting from meeting contemporaries who are taking, have taken a much different path, whose backgrounds are so vastly different from their own. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that every Harvard student is privileged because I know that's not the case. But when you think about, um, you know, the difference in, in the backgrounds of these, of these people, you know, these clients, these poor kids that are at the shelter and talking, you know, having the opportunity to speak with a Harvard student, it works both ways. The Harvard students benefit, I believe, tremendously from that experience. So, yeah, I think it's important. And I think it's something that, um, as I told Sam and Sarah, it should be replicated. And they did, you know, they went down to Yale and they, um, there's a shelter down there. And in speaking with Sam and Sarah not long ago, um, because we do stay in touch, they said, you know, Denise, we, we knew how, how special the business association was, but we didn't realize how special until we tried to do a wide to wide shelter at, down at Yale and working mm-hmm. with the business community and didn't get the kind of support that the HSBA gave us. So um, I think, again, that goes back to our leadership, our mission, and our long time. Um, this is not new. You know, this is something that the Business Association has done since the beginning. And, you know, if you go back into the records, into the archives, um, they participated in, you know, helping out with the, um, the pandemic of 1918. They were, you know, raising, um, you know, they've, they've been raising money and participating in these kinds of activities throughout the history of the association. So while, you know, um, it's, it's wonderful to be here and, and we can take a lot of credit for the things that are going on today, it's not unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, so from that story with Sam and Sarah, I'm hearing two big things. I'm hearing one thing is the power of community and, you know, relying on several role players to do something that uh, requires such an effort to build a new homeless shelter that requires an immense amount of immense amounts of organization and honestly just communication. And then the second big thing I'm hearing is going beyond what your discipline requires. Like the Harvard Square Business Association, like you said, you guys have like a motto of doing good, doing the right thing. And when you think business, you don't that is not like immediately what comes to mind of being some, you know, moral um, exemplar. And I really appreciate you and, of course, the Harvard Square Business Business Association for, you know, being committed to that idea. Um, I think it's I, I have a question for you, you know. Coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're still in it. A lot of communities are still dealing with the effects of it. How, you know, how do we get uh, more Harvard institutions to really consider going beyond the discipline? Like, let's say, for example, the the Harvard uh, Harvard University has opened recently uh, 
or is um, starting to um, establish, you know, the Salada Institute on Climate and Sustainability. And um, the Salada Institute on Climate and Sustainability does not necessarily include um, a specific action item that they are going to do for environmental justice. And so like, what I'm learning from this story is how, how, how would you recommend that I could uh, I could begin to think about, we could begin to think about as a Harvard community, ways of incorporating more interdisciplinary work, more community building work, going beyond our discipline when it comes to um, science and climate science, because it's just like business, it's very easy to get caught up in what you're doing and not think about necessarily the, the, the uh, from the ground level up as you described it. So how do we get Harvard with the Salada Institute on Climate and Sustainability to start thinking about that community level building and going beyond the discipline to incorporate environmental justice into their science? So, you know, we work closely with um, Phillips Brooks House and there are so many opportunities, I think, through Phillips Brooks that um, we should be taking advantage of. And again, rather than expecting this to come from the top down, mm. we would expect that the students would mm. rally and build a coalition of committed individuals who understand that they have an obligation to take care of each other mm. and force it from the bottom up. So show, show them, be, be the examples. And I believe that that's the way to do it. I, you know, look, we could have left Michael lying on a slab, right? Mm. Forever in perpetuity. We could have done that, but we knew that this was somebody in our community that we knew. I didn't go to the board and say, hey, how do I handle this? Mm. He didn't go to the university and say, what should I be doing? He just did it. He wrote a poem and came to me and said, we need to do something. And we just did it. And I'm telling you, you have such a force within the student population to just do it. And you show the example, you lead the way, you be the leader. Just do it. It's really interesting um, because, you know, some people just sort of sit back and just wait for somebody to tell them what to do. And you have a, a, a massive army of young people who are really smart, dedicated, energetic. And I know that this is not your life mission. You all have your own, as you say, disciplines that, you're, that you know, you want to um, become proficient in. But if you just take a few hours a week and just dedicate yourself to service, to other people, to do the right thing, whatever it is, and you can do that through Phillips Brooks, you will make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying, all of you out there listening, you become the leader. Show the way. Don't wait for Harvard to do it. They'll follow your lead. Thank you so much. That's really inspirational. It's like you're speaking to me. And you're also speaking to people who are around me. And I really appreciate that. Um, again, I don't I, I'm like just there's so many ways I could go forward with the discussion. But I also want to be cognizant of your time. Um, uh, so I, I feel like moving on, I was, I was really thinking about uh, environmental justice, what you're doing right now. Harvard Square Business Association, you know, again, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic ongoing, 
you know, what do you think is the big problem that's that's lurking right now so that you think us leaders, instead of relying on Harvard, what should we be really thinking about as we try to get uh, involved with, you know, not only protecting the unhoused population of Harvard Square right now, but, you know, we want to set up long term um, types of support for the next generation of unhoused um, of members um, at Harvard Square. So, you know, um, I'm sorry that I didn't pay more attention to this article that I read recently. It was just in the Globe in the past couple of days about um, mental health issues mm. and that in Africa, they have such um, a shortage of mental health professionals and that we here in the United States will be, we, we're encountering that now as a result of the pandemic and it's going to just get worse. Mm. And there was this article talked about, you know, this friendship bench and these grandmothers who were assigned, you know, they were trained um, to just listen to people. And they set up these friendship benches and these grandmothers sit at these benches and people come, and they just talk and they develop relationships and the grandmothers, you know, give them some words of wisdom and try to help them and build their confidence. And I was thinking about it after I read the article that, geez, wouldn't it be fun if, if we had just some benches in Harvard Square that were called friendship benches and mm. students could just go and sit and unhoused people or anybody really that just needs somebody to talk to can just come and sit down and have a conversation. Now, I'm not suggesting that you indulge in mental health care. All I'm saying is that there's an opportunity to just be a friend. Mm. And that it, just sit and listen. And they were saying that um, the success of that program has been extraordinary because people sometimes, what, it, what they were trying to say is that not always, but sometimes with mental health issues, if people can just talk to somebody, just have share their stories, or, you know, sometimes they don't even have to talk, but just having somebody sit there beside you and have a cup of coffee or something is really the, that people will learn to heal themselves. Mm. It's just an extraordinary um, thought, but you know what? It's not that complicated. It's just being a friend. So anyway, um, it was just, it, it was a terrific article. I'll find it if you want, I can send you the link to it or you could. Please, please. Yeah, it, it, but it was powerful in that, it, in its simplicity yeah. and, it, and its effectiveness. And, you know, to some extent, um, you know, we do that a lot here because there are people in the square that are regulars. We call them regulars. They have been here in the square unhoused for decades decades and over the past several years i've had the opportunity to connect some people with services here in cambridge and i am delighted to say that you know there are two chess players that are at the smith campus center all the time and two who are unhoused are not housed because of some work that we did to help them hmm. there was a young pregnant girl she was a client or a guest at um, the Youth on Fire. <clears throat> and when we, um, when we started, when I got to know her, because I bought her an ice cream cone, because it was a very hot afternoon, and there were a whole group of kids hanging out on Palma Street, and she was one of them. So I asked them all if I could buy them an ice cream, and they were, of course, pleased. 
So we went to Lizzie's. I bought them some ice cream. And when she said thank you to me, she said, by the way, I'm pregnant. Mm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how pregnant are you? And she said, four months. The baby's due in December. And I asked her where she was living. And she said, well, you know, my boyfriend has a car. It's kind of beat up, but um, he does have a car. And we park it every night over by Longfellow Park. And that's where we sleep because we, we feel safe there. And then during the day, I come here. I was concerned about well baby care, if she was seeing anybody, if she was taking vitamins, you know, having appropriate just, um, you know, care, mm. health care. Mm. So anyway, um, we worked very closely with her. Um, I worked with Cambridge Police. Immediately, we were able to get her shelter, which was just nothing short of miraculous. And then continued to work with her for the next um, several months. And just one week before the baby was born, um, we were able to get her into permanent housing in Malden with the father of the child. The baby wow. came a week later. Hmm. Um, the business association ran a virtual baby shower for her. So we encouraged her to um, create a, um, you know, an online um, list of things that she wanted. And I reached out to members of the business association as well as my family and friends and people bought her everything that she needed to bring that baby home, mm. including a car seat that, you know, the hospital will not release a baby um, unless there's an appropriate car seat. So um, everything that she needed. And mm. I stay in touch with her, too. The little girl just turned a year old in December and the family is together and they're doing really well. And that speaks to another um, social service agency here in Harvard Square, which is called Furnishing Hope. Because what they do is people that have um, furniture, accessories, um, you know, kitchen utensils, whatever, um, linens, as long as things are in good shape, um, Furnishing Hope will accept them, uh, sit on that board, and we have an agreement with a um, with, with moving company that provides some storage. Everything is cleaned and identified and put online and um, clients can go as this girl could and she could pick out what she needed. So whether it's a toaster or a coffee pot or, you know, a comforter or, or, you know, dishes, they could go online and pick and choose what they want and it gets delivered. So um, as I said, a week before the baby was born, Furnishing Hope went in, all the furniture was delivered, everything was set up, and that child came home to a place that, you know, um, was clean and safe and warm, and the family is thriving. And again, just, you know, an unusual situation, but, you know, but with all of these agencies working together, so a combination of, you know, Furnishing Hope, Youth on Fire, the Cambridge Police Department, the multi-service center at the city of Cambridge, working together, you know, connected by the business association, we were able to take care of that family. That's such an amazing story, again, of community. And it's, it's, yes. a, it's a reoccurring theme I'm hearing here. And, and I really appreciate you for telling these stories uh, because they, they tell people, everyone can interpret them differently. And um, they also tell in each story, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of, like what I call the, the, the objective like truth of what needs to be done right now. So that these stories, while they're inspiring, they're a little bit heartbreaking in the sense that like the fact that this is what it takes for one story. Like if you think about um, before when we were talking about Michael, 
or now with uh, this pregnant woman, it's like these are the stories that we receive and um, that or that we give a lot of attention to because, of course, we know that there's some there's a little bit of of, of a little bit of a good ending, even when we, we think of how um, tragic a death can be. We still see, oh, how the community came together. But what about yes. all the total like, you know, the numerous other cases that that kind of go and they kind of go forgotten um, or yes. ignored. So I, I really for, for my last couple of questions here, um, you know, with with all the you know, the ideas that you have, I, I've been talking about the Salada Institute on climate sustainability that recently got what two hundred million dollars, which is a lot of money <laughs> for their institute. And they're trying to really be committed to environmental justice. And, you know, of course, that means caring for the unhoused population. Uh, what do you think, what is the platform, you know, that you need to start addressing these problems, whether it's the bench and, the, you know, the friends, the friends just listening, just being there. Like, what is the platform that you think we need to start, um, pre like, um, pressing for or we need to start pushing these ideas on? Okay, so this is going to sound really radical. Oh, please, I'm here for it. But, <laughs> but you know the 200 million that was just given? Yeah. This, this issue has been studied to death. Mm. Studied to death, and we haven't figured it out. And I'm telling you, it's not that difficult. Each person has their own needs, whether it was the pregnant woman or Michael, or I have, I have you know, dozens more stories like this, right? All it takes is put the money to the individual and start putting money toward programs. We are so inflated with programs. And I'm not saying that they're not important, and I'm not saying that research isn't important. But what I am saying is this has been researched and researched, and the problem is not solved. And you mm. know what? It will never be solved. Mm. But you can, if, if, if we can just, you know, look at it. If we had that bench, right, and, and people could just come and say, look at you know, I need a house. Let me tell you, I, I have more stories if you have have more time. But but this is also a really important one. So there was this gentleman who lived in front of the Harvard Coop for about six years. And he reached out to me asking me if I would have a cup of coffee with him. And I said, of course. Now, I saw him. I really didn't know his name, but I saw him every single day. So we sat down and had coffee, and I realized he's not drug addicted, he's mm. not alcoholic, mm. he's poor, and he needs a break. So the pandemic comes, and um, this gentleman actually wanted to join the business association, and I said, of course. Now, the cost for an individual to join is $100, and I said to him, you know what, I don't want to take your 100 just come to the board meetings and, you know, get to know people, have a cup of coffee, share your ideas, whatever it is. And he said, no, 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 I need to pay because I want to be a bona fide member of the association. So after a couple of months, he came and he gave me $100 in cash because that's what he was earning out there. But mm -hmm. it took a couple of months to do it right. So he gave me the cash because he has dignity and he wanted respect and he wanted it to be real. Mm. And I understood that. And as much as I didn't want to take his money, I did because I understood that was his need. So anyway, he becomes a member. The pandemic's coming. And um, we have a property owner who has a 
you know, small property here in the square. And she was not going to be able to come to check on her property because we were quarantined. So she called me and said, is there anybody in the square that I could work with who could check my properties a couple of times a day so that I could sleep better at night because there isn't anybody in the square and this is my one and only property and I need to make sure it's okay. So I connected this unhoused gentleman with her and I said, look at here's a guy who's been coming to our board meetings. He's terrific. He's here in the square every day. He beds down in front of the coop every night and, um, and he has a phone. I'm sure he can do this for you. So they develop a little relationship. And <clears throat> that was, you know, sort of in probably April of 2020. Come November of 2020, they have established a friendship. And she was very concerned about him being outside in the cold. Mm. So she said, do you think I can talk to him about being my in-house security person whereby he stays in the building and just make sure that everything's okay. We don't want the temperature to get too cold. Pipes will burst, all that kind of thing. Mm. He could keep the heat on. There's a little kitchen area in the office upstairs. There's a shower. He could be there. And I said, I'm sure that that's, that will work for him. He could be your overnight security. Mm. So they, he basically got inside that winter, which was really quite wonderful for both of them. Mm. Come the spring, She's ready to lease the space. And she said to me, I don't have the heart to ask him to go out back onto the street since he's been inside for six months now or five months. Mm. So what I would really like to do is to try to find a furnished small studio apartment in Cambridge and I will pay the rent. So we helped her find an apartment small, furnished, clean, safe, and she paid the rent. And then we worked with him to get a Section 8 voucher. And then when the Section 8 voucher came, the property owner accepted the voucher and this benefactor didn't have to pay the rent anymore. And now he's been housed for a couple of years over a simple phone call. Mm. All we need is like one person directing traffic. That's yeah. it, right? Just yeah. directing traffic. And, you know, he continues to be a member of the business association. And since that time, he's been able to pick up a couple of odd jobs here and there. And the Section 8 voucher requires him to pay his own gas and electric, which is fine. So now he's beginning to build his credit, you know, back up again. And you know, it's a great story. And it's true. And we have dozens more just like it. I mean, it's just like there are things that are going on every single day here in Harvard Square yeah. that are full of goodness and value and mm. making a difference one life at a time. So all I'm saying is if I had that 200 million, all I would need to do is like direct traffic. But it's not going to be me. It's going to be somebody like you or somebody from your cohort who's going to be directing that traffic. That's what we need. We need people doing stuff because there are so many resources already available to us, whether it's paying senior services or furnishing hope. The programs are out there. All somebody has to do is direct the traffic. Wow. I keep using these transportation no, analogies, no, I'm don't just, I? <laughs> I just want you to understand. Like, I've literally, like, I don't have words other than I'm literally inspired. Um... I'm I'm really inspired. It's like the only word really coming to me right now 
because of these stories you're just like a wealth bank of stories that i think <laughs> are so important they're needed and they galvanize you they make you understand they make you realize just how much power you have and i thank you for you know your time giving answers and the the hope the hope that you just inject into these stories um no matter the outcome is so refreshing it's like needed all the time especially when you're thinking about addressing these you know long-term generational problems problems that are as old as the history of society when it comes to unhoused members and you have this hope and optimism that really carries through all your stories so one i really appreciate you for that and and i know you've been and kind of infusing it in all your stories but one thing i kind of ask all of my interviewees is um what what is the good news out there because it like it comes from a lot of the times when i'm asking them about like pure climate science or it's like the effects disproportionate effects of climate change on certain communities it's often a lot of bad news whether you're talking about climate change on a global scale or on a local scale you're it'd be hard pressed to find a lot of good news you know in the media wherever you go to get your news so i'm always asking my interviewers like what is the good news out there that we could help us to fuel us for just a little bit longer to keep up the good fight and keep up the good news uh keep going after the good news so you know for me the good news is that we do have these individuals who whose lives have been transformed by somebody you know or a group just taking the time to to you know put the pieces put the puzzle pieces together so what i'm saying is there are a lot of puzzles and they have all the pieces all we have to do is put it together mm. so go find your puzzle because there are a million out there it's endless just go find your puzzle and put the pieces together because we do we have all the puzzle pieces and the puzzles pieces pieces are the, the places that i mentioned right so whether it's furnishing hope or you know um pain senior services or the, the the shelter you have the opportunity to put the puzzle together just just go do it and when you do good things will happen so i have an update that i just got mm. yesterday afternoon on michael so he's still not been identified but i got a phone call from a private investigator and there's a woman in washington state who's been looking for her brother wow. and and um we think and we're she's taken the dna test and before michael was buried the commonwealth of course took dna um and blood samples and um we're hoping that we've been able to identify michael which would be just a gift to his family yeah because he um this person that she's looking for um grew up in this area although she's in washington state now and um we'll know within probably a week or two whether or not um the identity of this person that we buried and know as michael is really somebody else mm. now what we did do um which felt a little bit um the only word i can use is kind of um it it was it, it felt uncomfortable to me mm. but when we did the memorial service for him um we 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 videotaped it with the intention that if the family ever came forward that they would know that their brother their uncle their father did not die without a community around him 
So we have a video of the memorial service from start to finish. And um, it will be a gift to that family to know that, you know, the police commissioner and the former mayor um, spoke at his service and that there was a police escort from Harvard Square to the Cambridge Cemetery. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's really good news and that's that's hopeful, right, for the family and it's a gift. And those are the kinds of transformational things that we can do mm. just by putting that puzzle together. Thank you so much. I know I said that again, I, I'm like a broken record at this point, but thank you so much <laughs> for your You're stories, welcome. for your optimism, for your continued effort to find the good news and to make the good news. Cause it's really easy to get jaded out there. Um, yeah. And I just have so many things that I know I'm taking away. I know that people who listen to this will take away. And mm -hmm. honestly, I, kn I hope that this is the start of something big. Um, I, I need a it's, it's like it makes me thinking like, oh, I need to do more like this. There's so many things that I could be doing just based off of these stories that you're telling. And again, thank you, Denise, so much. Um, I hope we're still in conversation and work um, and working you know, relationship. And I, I'm really looking forward to honestly working with you on something in the future. Um, so Great. thank you for all these ideas, all these I'm, I'm trying to incorporate in a conversation. I would be having with the Salat Institute on Climate Sustainability, their director. And I think hopefully that, you know, whether that meeting goes well or not, these are the types of conversations that are so important, the perspectives that are so important that need to be brought up for a potential meeting. So I, I appreciate you so much. I'm really grateful. And um, yeah, I, I think that that's it for me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I'm going to send you a half a dozen links and you can read a few more stories. And um, get back to me. I'm happy to help. Well, that wraps up another episode of the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you again to Denise Jilson for being a part of this convo. This is actually one of the conversations I've been having over the last couple of weeks about climate justice and the Salada Institute on climate sustainability and what they could do about environmental injustice. But this conversation is just one of them. And maybe I might upload more of the conversations on the podcast, but I want to take the time to be appreciative of this one. So I thank you guys for listening. Um, if you're really liking the podcast, you know, Feel free to share. I'd appreciate that on Instagram. Follow me at OBA underscore O-S-A-S-E. And you can follow the podcast directly at climates underscore doctor underscore pod. Again, I appreciate you guys listening. Stay tuned. And I, I'm about to be out. Peace and God bless.